This is Mark Tyler Nobleman, author of Boys of Steel, the creators of Superman, and you're listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 76, and my name is Michael Bradley. This time out, we are going to be looking at the Superman story from the pages of Action Comics number 29. I hope you all enjoyed my chat with Mark Tyler Nobleman last episode. It was Really great having him on the show, and I hope he can come back at some point. I did want to clarify or, or verify one thing we talked about, and that is that Bill Finger did write the very first Lori Lamar's story. The Girl in Superman's Past was originally published in Superman number 129 from 1959. If you're interested in hearing more about that story, former guest Billy Hogan has looked at it three times on his show. So, track down episodes 60, 188, and 222 of the Superman Fan Podcast for that. And while we're on the subject of fellow Superman podcasters, I want to give a big old shout-out and a hearty congratulations to my former semi-regular co-host, Charlie Niemeyer, who recently hit episode 50 of his show, Superman in the Bronze Age. Charlie's show actually started a little bit before this one, but he's had a couple breaks in there for various reasons, and he's only hitting uh, 50 episodes now. But still, Charlie puts out a great show, and 50 episodes of any podcast is uh, absolutely nothing to sneeze at. I've had the pleasure of joining Charlie for two of those 50, or I guess three technically if you want to be picky about it. But I've really enjoyed all 50 episodes, so I definitely look forward to the next 50. If you haven't checked out Charlie's show, I want to highly encourage you to do so. He's got a new website up at supermaninthebronzeage.com and is now back with all new, all awesome bi-weekly episodes, so definitely give it a try. And while we're on the subject of things that Charlie does, one of the reasons he had to step down from this show is because he became the colorist on the webcomic Slipstream, which is written by my Green Lanterns-like co-host Jeffrey Taylor and illustrated by the aforementioned Billy Hogan. I said I'd keep you updated on the progress of that, so in case you didn't see the post on the Facebook page, the first and second seasons of the comic are now available in full color, thanks to Charlie's hard work. And season three should be starting very soon, if it hasn't already by the time you hear this. So head on over to clockworkcomics.co.uk and check out Slipstream as well as all the other fine comics that are available there for the outrageous price of absolutely free. And once again, Charlie, a big congratulations on your work there and on hitting the big 5-0 on Bronze Age. Keep up the great work.
In the decade of the 1970s and 80s, not even the great city of Metropolis could be spared the ravages of an energy crisis, supercriminal attacks, or disco. The job of protecting the city fell to Superman, whose battle for truth, justice, and the American way made him a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. Charlie Niemeyer in association with the Superman Podcast Network presents Superman in the Bronze Age Superman in the Bronze Age is a bi-weekly podcast highlighting the Bronze Age adventures of the Man of Steel in various comic titles. Follow along at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com Action Comics number 29 was 64 pages and was released around August 22, 1940. That puts it coming out just before the end of both a radio serial storyline and a storyline from the dailies, which will be the focus of the next two episodes. The Sunday Strip, meanwhile, was about one-third of the way into a storyline we'll be looking at later, later this summer. It had an October cover date, and the cover art is by Wayne Boring, and it shows Superman leaping away or flying away from a moving car with Lois Lane in his arms. Superman dodges a hail of gunfire from the crooks who are amazed at the Man of Steel's daring rescue. It's a it's an absolutely beautiful cover, and there's just no two ways about it. Superman looks great, Lois looks great, it's a dynamic shot as he literally swooshes through the cover to rescue the girl reporter. We've gotten well into an era of really strong covers on Action Comics. This issue does have an unfortunate addition to the cover, however, at least for Canadian readers, because they've added a line noting the book's price is now 15 cents in Canada. American readers, however, can still get their hands on the book for one bright and shiny dime. Turning inside, our 13-page Superman story was written by Jerry Siegel and illustrated by Jack Burnley, the second in his run here on the book, and the story has been titled The Life Insurance Scam. Aged, helpless people, the victims of a ghoulish plot. A secret fiend, waxing wealthy through the spilling of innocent blood. This is the setup which Clark Kent, meek Daily Planet reporter, investigates, and which Superman, champion of the helpless and oppressed, smashes. As we open, Clark Kent and Lois Lane have some time off work, so Clark calls up Lois and invites her on a drive. After not filling up the gas tank, wink wink, Clark arrives at Lois's apartment but finds she isn't home. An hour later, Lois finally shows up, saying that she forgot all about poor old Clark, but throws him a bone and says she'll go for a ride if he'll take her to 1819 Chestnut Street. Clark at first refuses, since that address is in the slums, but ultimately agrees, since Lois always gets her way anyway. They go to visit, quote, a lovely crippled old lady, Mrs. Davis, unquote, who is now in dire straits since her sister, who supported her, recently died. After running into an ill-tempered guy by the name of Tom Bruce, 
Clark and Lois go in and offer their sympathies. But Davis says she hasn't been left in such dire straits after all, having collected money from insurance. She then sings the praises of a Mr. Fullerton, who has been offering low-cost insurance policies to the poor. A Mrs. Grady, who is there for no apparent reason, isn't so kind on Fullerton, however, saying the guy's a crook and people who sign up for his policies seem to die soon afterwards. Davis isn't having any of Grady's sour attitudes, though, and tells her to leave. Lois then says she's starting to get a headache, so Davis directs her to the medicine cabinet. Clark goes along, and as Lois is about to take some aspirin, his x-ray vision alerts him to the fact that they aren't aspirin at all, but in fact they are poison. Feigning an attack of the clumsy, Clark bumps into Lois, causing her to drop the pills. He then reveals what the pills actually are, to the seeming surprise of both Lois and Bruce. Bruce, who for some reason is also in the bathroom with Clark and Lois. Davis says she got the pills at Graham's drugstore, so Clark and Lois rush out after the story. They enter the drugstore and ask for the same brand of aspirin sold to Bradford, but the owner says they don't have any more. So Lois gets mouthy, telling him he's in a mess of trouble because the bottle he sold her was actually poison. The owner then gets mad and tosses them both out, which causes Lois to yell at Clark for not being a man and standing up to him. Just then, down the block, Clark sees someone get hit by a car. As the driver speeds away, Clark and Lois rush to the scene and realize the victim is Mrs. Grady. Remembering that Grady was going to tell her something about Fullerton, and seeing that we've still got eight pages of story left, Lois thinks Grady's death may not be as accidental as it seems. Meanwhile, a mob led by Bruce angrily storms the drugstore, incited by Bradford's death. The owner brandishes a gun and warns them to stay back, to no avail. Clark tells Lois he's going to go get the police, but Lois just calls him a coward and runs after the angry mob, hoping to stop it herself. With Lois out of the way, Clark slips into an alley and changes to Superman. Lois runs after the mob, but can't pull them off as they push towards the store. Scared, the owner fires a gun at the mob, and Lois. But high overhead is Superman. Zipping like a human lightning bolt, Superman dives between Lois and the gunman, saving her life as the deadly bullet merely bounces harmlessly off of his chest. The mob flees in panic at the gunshot, and the owner swears he didn't mean to shoot. As Lois is thanking Superman for saving her, Sergeant Casey arrives and tells Superman to put his hands up. Casey swears he's caught Superman, but the Man of Steel simply laughs and takes off with a mighty leap, soon landing back in the alley and changing back to Clark Kent. Rejoining Lois, she chews him out again for running off, and soon the police start to take Bruce into custody. But a local politician shows up out of nowhere, saying they should let him go. With Bruce freed, Lois and Clark head to Fullerton's office to ask him about the rash of mysterious deaths. Fullerton confirms that Bradford had a small policy, but is incensed when they imply that he might be behind her death, and ends up tossing the reporters out. Lois tells Clark she's going back to Davis's to ask more questions, but suspecting she might be up to something, Clark changes to Superman and watches from a rooftop as she circles back to Fullerton's. Lois tries sneaking through a window, but is caught by two men, one of them being Tom Bruce. They tie her up and start to leave when Bruce realizes that Lois can ID them and turns to shoot her. But crashing through the window comes Superman, demanding drop that gun, and begins manhandling the thugs. Having heard all the commotion, Fullerton calls the police, and they arrive just as Superman is untying Lois. 
Taking that as his cue to leave, Superman leaps out the window with Lois in his arms and soon deposits her on the roof of the Daily Planet before leaping away again. A short while later, Bruce and his crony leave the police station on bail and are trailed by Superman to the office of a political boss by the name of Martin, who is possibly the same guy from earlier. They don't really make it clear. Anyway, they tell him about Superman's interference, and Martin tells him to leave and he'll take care of things. Meanwhile, Lois shows up again at Fullerton's, saying she's got proof of his wrongdoings. Fullerton forces her into a car and takes her to Martin's, demanding that she be prosecuted for being annoying. Oh, and accusing him of being a murderer, blah 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 blah. But mostly because she's annoying. Martin tells him to go away because he's leaving town, and Fullerton gets angry and says that he'll stay, because he, Fullerton, had been backing the insurance society and he's responsible for it. Fullerton gets so angry at this point that he gives us exposition, saying the society is responsible for the deaths, but things had been rigged to make it look like Bruce is the guilty one. He also says he took out a policy on Bruce before pulling out a gun and shooting him. He then turns the gun on Lois, but before he can fire, Superman busts through the wall and makes quick work of Fullerton, Martin, Bruce, and the other nameless thug. He then rends open Martin's safe, making the evidence against them readily available for the approaching police before leaping off all heroic-like. Later, Clark meets up with Lois, who gives us an entire novel of exposition about how this game worked, and, and you know, people would take out small policies, but unknowingly sign up for larger ones that were payable to Bruce, who then killed the people and collected the money. What a scoop, Clark replies. I wish Superman would help me get a swell story like that sometime. The end. And how a guy with super speed and a photographic memory is always late getting his story in... I don't know, but... To get into the notes, page one. Our story opens with a full-page splash. The first such creature ever in a Superman story. And boy howdy, is it an awesome shot. We see Superman leaping dynamically through the front window of the drugstore, diving towards the owner who has just fired his gun. There are shards of glass exploding about, and we see the mob of people gathered outside the store... Inside, we see, you know, bottles and boxes and, and containers, both on the shelf behind the owner and in the display case. Superman just looks awesome, uh, as he always does when Jack Burnley is penciling. It, it's a really, really great, op- a really great and dynamic opening splash page. Even better is the fact that it actually is a scene from the story, uh, with exception of the fact that we don't see Lois in the splash. So that's something that's always a plus in my book. After suffering through, uh, you know, months and months of stories where we see Superman grabbing an eagle out of midair or fighting a lion, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the story inside, I love that we see this full-page, well-drawn, dynamic opening splash that actually does, not only ties into the story, but actually is a scene from the story. Um, We aren't done with the partial-page opening splashes, but... From here on out, we're going to see full-page splashes used more and more, especially during the stint of Burnley illustrated stories here in Action Comics. And I don't know about you, but I'm happy to see it. The downside is that it does trim a bit of real estate from the story, but really only, you know, four panels, two panels if they were going with the three-quarter splash. So that's not really enough to make a huge difference in most cases. 
For those playing along at home, the Splash does use the refined and now classic version of the Superman logo type. If I'm remembering my stories correctly, this is only the second time it's been used inside a book and the first time in Action Comics. Moving on to page two, the very first panel on this page looks almost exactly like a panel from a Steve Rude illustrated comic. I, I didn't have a chance to go dig through the long, through the long boxes and, and pull it out, but I think it might have been The Incredible Hulk versus Superman. But either way, you can see a lot of similarities in some of Rude's work and Jack Burnley's, which probably explains why I like both artists so much. Um, I highly doubt Rude swiped the panel, but I, I thought it was interesting. We also learn here that Lois lives in apartment 5B in what is possibly either Parkview Apartments or Parkville Apartments. We only see P-A-R-K-V on the sign. I'm going to try and keep this in mind. I, I've said before I love the minutiae, the, the family they introduce, addresses, that kind of thing. And I want to try and keep track of that kind of thing as we move forward. Uh, this is the first address we've gotten for any of the recurring characters, outside of the fact that they live in Metropolis or New York or Cleveland or, <laughs> you know, but mostly Metropolis. But I, I just love that, you know, we get an address for Lois Lane. It's silly and it'll probably be contradicted in the very next story where they give her address, but still, I, I, I just, I don't know, I just love that kind of thing. Uh, but I like the opening to the story here, too, with, you know, Lois setting up a date with Clark and then completely blowing him off. Well, I don't love it because it makes her a horrible, horrible person. But that's totally her personality in this era. It's it's so spot on, and that I love. But Clark, after Lois tells him to take her to the address, he says, th th That's in the slums! I was going to take you to the park! I refuse to do it! And then 15 minutes later, they arrive at the address. Well, all right, you always get your way anyway. They really played up Clark's timidity and his uh, nebbishness in the story. Really, maybe too much for my taste, but there you go. Jumping ahead to page four, I'm sorry, there was no reason for Clark to go with Lois to the bathroom. Yeah, I realize he needed, air quotes, needed to be there for the revelation that the pills were actually poison, but Lois could have brought the pills into the next room or Mrs. Grady could have gotten them for her and brought them into the next room. I, I suppose it's a minor thing, but it just seems really forced and really silly, especially when you see that Tom, Bruce, is in the bathroom with him as well. It's like, okay, here, Lois, I'll walk across the house with you, a complete stranger, and, and help you get aspirin when I could just bring them myself. <laughs> it's just nonsense. Um, I did like, though... And I didn't really catch this when I read the story, but Tom offers to get Lois the aspirin first, which that actually makes sense because he was in on the racket and clearly wouldn't want to give Lois something that would kill her if he didn't have to. So that was a nice little touch. Page five, this is actually nice. Um, this is a really good example of the subtleties in Jack Burnley's artwork. In panel 5, we see Clark and Lois standing outside the drugstore, and Clark looks slightly hunched over. It's a very different posture than Superman, uh, much like Christopher Reeve would do when he portrayed the character. Uh, 
you know, you can picture him opening up his shirt, taking off his glasses, and standing up a little straighter, and there would be Superman. It's very nice, and not every artist can pull off that kind of subtlety. Even more interesting is, to the best of my recollection, there's been no mention to this point of him changing his posture or his body language when in his guise as Clark. So it's interesting to see that subtlety in the art when the writing hasn't made a point of it. Page 6, we have the mob scene. At first I thought it was odd that Tom was leading the mob, but it makes complete sense once you get to later in the story and you realize that he was in on the insurance racket. You know, he uses the pills to secretly kill Bradford, and then once discovered, he tries to blame the drugstore for selling poison. It's completely logical. I don't know how he got to the drugstore so fast when Lois and Clark had seemingly just arrived, but the scene itself tracks with the story. Page 7, we have two fantastic panels of art on this page. First, one with Superman soaring in past the mob. He's in midair, very much a flight-like pose, and there are speed lines all around him as he zips above the heads of the mob. And the narration says that he moves like a human lightning bolt. It's very awesome. This panel is most definitely going in the show notes. The other one I really liked is basically a recreation of the splash that opened the story. But the interesting thing is, where that was a vertical image, as is fitting with the dimensions of a comic book page, this one is extremely horizontal. It's the width of the comic book page, but only one quarter of the height, since they're still locked in that eight-panel grid. If you have the comic or a reprint, compare this panel with the splash and look at all the similarities. It's pretty much the exact same moment in the story, but it's not the exact same image. And despite the fact that they're completely different dimensions, the image works both ways. And I love that. It even looks like this panel could be a split second after the splash, because Superman is a little farther into the store, the shards of glass are gone, apparently having fallen to the ground, and Graham's expression is now one of surprise rather than one of anger or fear as it was in a splash. It's just really, really nice and an impressive bit of repetition from Burnley, capturing the exact same moment in very different but very similar ways. And the final panel on the page shows a great barrel-chested Superman. The Man of Steel is a little stockier in this story compared to the other two that Burnley have done. Uh, It's not a lot. I mean, he's still got that athletic look that Burnley brings, but he does look slightly more like the barrel-chested model, uh, barrel-chested Schuster model, even though he's still definitely Burnley's Superman. Page 8, our old friend Sergeant Casey shows up, but is gone again just as quickly as Superman leaps away and we switch scenes. It kind of looks like Casey has red hair in the first two panels, but later it looks more like brown or dirty blonde, so that could just be a coloring thing. Skipping ahead to page 10, another great panel on this page is we see uh, he, he smashes through the window all heroic and he demands that Tom drop that gun. And his words are big and bold, and the, the art is just fantastic. It's just a beautiful, beautiful moment in the story and a beautiful, beautiful panel. But in the following panel, he grabs Tom and Mr. Nameless Thug, and the narration says, The Man of Steel's amazing strength terrorizes the two vicious hoodlums. 
And yeah, I'd say that pretty much sums up Superman's approach to criminals in this Golden Age era. Um, jumping way ahead to the end of the story, page 13, um, another cool panel here of Superman smashing through the wall to save Lois. He seems to do that a lot in this story, but thankfully Superman smashing through a wall never gets old. He then uses the Crypto Claw to take out the villains, rips open the safe, and leaps off in time to get back to the Daily Planet for Lois Lane to give us exposition that probably should have been explained earlier in the story. Uh, but still. Overall, I liked this one. It was a solid story, but at the same time, kind of dull. Or at least very routine. Um, Superman had a fairly small part, and there just wasn't anything incredibly amazing about it that led me to say a lot about the story itself, even though I've, like I always do, I've kind of talked about it for quite a while. Um, it was a, it was actually a very solid story plot-wise. There wasn't anything significant that jumped out at me as far as the villain's plan that, you know, made me second-guess just what the heck they were thinking, and there was nothing even all that outlandish or unbelievable, which is kind of surprising in a Golden Age comic. Um, one might question how they were able to trick people into signing policies other than what they thought they were actually signing, but yet also sign what they wanted to sign, but I think it works in the context of the Golden Age. Art. Uh, Burnley's art, as always, is amazing. I've talked about the art a lot already in the notes, so there's not much more to say about it other than I thought this was slightly better than last issue, even if he's not quite gotten back to the level he was at with the World's Fair issue. And again, he seems to be emulating the Schuster model for the characters themselves, uh, perhaps even more so, as I noted earlier with the slightly more barrel-chested Superman. But still, I, I just remain in awe of the awesomeness of Burnley's art. If you want to read this story, it's been reprinted three times. First, in the tabloid-sized limited collector's edition C31, with that great H.J. Ward's Superman painting on the cover. As that reprint came out in the 70s, this was a time when Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster were still very much on the outs with DC. So unfortunately, their byline is stripped from the story, but they did add one for Jack Burnley, crediting him with the art. So there's something to be said for that, at least. Um, but then you can also find it in the old standbys of Superman, the Action Comics Archives Volume 2, in Superman Chronicles, Volume 4. And in local news, police report finding three men literally stuck to the ceiling of a warehouse they were trying to rob. But the adhesive wasn't glue or paste, it was static electricity. According to the frightened thieves, they were caught by a young masked man who had mutant electromagnetic powers and called himself Static. Hello, this is a promo for Shock to the System, a static podcast. This show will follow the shocking sensation that's on the monumental TV show and the milestone of the comic industry. The journey begins in 1993. Join me, Kenneth Lasser, at shock2thesystem.com for the birth of the crew. See you there. The name's Static. I put a shock to your system.
Other features in this issue of Action Comics include all of our old friends, Pet Morgan, The Black Pirate, The Three Aces, Tex Thompson, Clip Carson, and Zaytara. While the strip itself will continue, this issue actually contains the final Zaytara story by Fred Gardner, who created the character that made its first appearance alongside Superman in Action Comics number one. And it's Gardner's final work for DC period, as far as I know. If you're interested in more about Gardner's career, and including his connection to Superman, be sure to go back and listen to the spotlight that I did on him back in episode 24. Uh, this issue also has a half-page ad promoting the World's Fair comic and All-Star Comics number 2, and half-page ads for Batman number 2 and the Superman radio show. The Big Six ad is also here again, and back to a full page, finally. And then there's a full-page ad for Superman number 7, which we'll be talking about in a few episodes. It's Superman again, bringing you another issue chock-full of thrills and adventure. And we have a really fun image of Superman resting his arm against a giant reproduction of the cover to that issue. So it's, it's, it's kind of a neat ad. The Action Comics book review makes a return, shining the spotlight on Westward Ho by Charles Kingsley. Again, though, it's not an actual review, but a short summary of the book, and why they chose a somewhat obscure British historical novel for this thing, I don't know, but there you go. Read a book, kids. Reading is fundamental. And if you read enough, you get a free pizza from Pizza Hut. And finally, we have our 16th Superman of America page, which, for the second time, I believe has a message from Clark Kent himself. And in the message, he talks about the radio show and how much people enjoy it. And then he goes on to say that he wants club members to prove their loyalty to the club by going to school and getting good grades so they can be a shining light for democracy in a world of darkness. This page also has Superman's secret message, which can be decoded using code Jupiter, number four on the Superman of America club decoder. And the message is... Be honest, play fair, respect the rights of others, and you will be a true American. Sound advice. As for other books on the stands, there was More Fun Comics number 59, which has an amusing Spectre cover showing uh, the hero crawling out of what I presume is supposed to be a safe, as two crooks react with, with quite a bit of surprise. Detective Comics number 43 saw Ed Moore taking over the art duties from Maurice Kashuba on Jerry Siegel's Bart Regan Spy, and it also had the final Red Logan strip by Ed Winiarski. Adventure Comics number 54 came out in the Hour Man story from that book. One of the Minutemen, like all good kid sidekicks, is kidnapped and held for ransom. Then there was Flash Comics number 10, as well as All-American Comics number 19. And that issue was fairly significant in that it featured the final Gary Concord the Ultraman strip by John L. Bloomer, as well as the first appearance of The Atom by Ben Flinton and Bill Cooper. The Atom is Al Prant, a nine-stone weakling with knobbly knees. Finally getting tired of constantly getting pushed around, he works out and trains until he's in fighting condition. He then dons a costume that makes Robbins look modest and fights crime as the Atom. The creation of that character was seemingly inspired by real-life strongman Joe Greenstein. 
And as I think I mentioned on a previous episode, he has an interesting connection to Superman. The, the Atom has an interesting connection to Superman in that much later down the road, he is given superpowers, which is even farther down the road explained that he came by following a battle with the villain known as Cyclotron, a.k.a. Terry Curtis, the scientist from Action Comics number 21. And the last two books from the company were All-American Comics number 2 and More Fun Comics number 60, the second issue of that title from this month. My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. The randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me. Listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20-minute long box. The 20-Minute Long Box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20-Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. I guess you weren't so tough after all, were you? Now it's time to send you to the next dimension. 291 original episodes. This can't be. It's still going up. 325 monster chapters. You act innocent, but you're deadly. Time to die! Dozens of characters, hundreds of enemies, and a whole lot of violence. That kind of violence is pointless! You see, Super Saiyans tend to be a bit violent. Oh, crap! Join hosts Donovan and Jesse. As they cover the arrival of the Saiyans, the journey to Namek, the battle with Frieza, the mystery of the androids, and the terror of Majin Buu. I lied when I said you could go, at least partially lied, for I will let you go to another dimension. The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Join the fight at dbznextdimension.libson.com. See ya. So apparently, I made a mistake. This story was not the first Superman story to open with a full-page splash. That honor actually goes to the second story from Superman number 6, which Josh Bertoni and I looked at back in episode 68. Uh, But this is the first uh, full-page splash to open a Superman story in Action Comics. So that's something. And like I said, we will start seeing more and more of these happen... Uh, as we'll keep going forward, especially in the Burnley illustrated stories. So I was at least right on that. Um, But that's it, folks. I want to thank you all for listening. Next episode, we are returning to the radio program for Superman's latest audio adventure. So I hope you'll come back. Please remember to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for anything and everything you need to know about the show. There you will find show notes for this episode and all back episodes. You will also find the iTunes link as well as the RSS feed, both of which can be used to subscribe to the show. If you are on any of the various social media networks, I encourage you to follow the show on Facebook and Twitter 
so you can get updates whenever I have a new episode or show-related news or just fun stuff to post. Don't forget to check out the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network, which are both chock-full of awesome Superman-related content, including, as I mentioned mentioned at the top of the show, Charlie Niemeyer's all-new, all-different, but still really awesome Superman in the Bronze Age. And last but not least, please check out my other podcast, Green Lantern's Light. We'll have a new episode out in just a couple weeks where my co-host, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, and I run headfirst into crisis on infinite Earths, and things only get better from there. We also recently talked with comic book legend Len Wein about his time writing and editing Green Lantern, so go listen. It's lots of good stuff. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Coincidental reading is fundamental.